Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely. And with me as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris DeMuth. It is Tuesday, August 23rd, and today Chris is just getting back from Rangeley, Maine. So we're going to start by talking about what our favorite investors have been up to recently, and then we're going to move on to talking about a fight to control the way mutual funds report to investors. Uh, so Chris, let's start off with uh, our 13F watch. We last talked about 13Fs, I think, in our February 17th podcast, aptly titled 13F Watch. And just as a reminder, 13Fs are what large investors who control more than $100 million in assets under management must make each quarter, and it discloses what their exact holdings look like as of the end of every quarter. So each of these 13Fs is as of the end of June. And what jumped out to you in all of the 13Fs you saw? Well, you know, Andrew, I always say we should be doing our own work, but I've just been paddleboarding around on Rangeley Lake. So <laughs> in lieu of doing my own work, I thought I would just kind of look at a cheat and see what my competitors have been up to. Hopefully they've been doing something good that we can copy. It's so much easier to plagiarize than to <laughs> do really all this reading. Is. You do your own work. It takes time. But instead, uh, looking at the 13 Fs, you know, I think that... Uh, it can be uh, useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the first I would uh, mention that we looked at was Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, so Berkshire Hathaway, they added to their stake in Apple's and in Apple and Phillips. Is it sixty six? I've got fifty five. I think it's Phillips sixty six. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they added to their stake this quarter, and Phillips sixty six is an interesting one. I mean, he, I believe, in Q one, he bought shares on every single trading day. So they clearly love this. That's a refiner. Uh, but things he's cutting, he cut his stakes in Deer, he cut his stake in Suncor, and one big thing he cut his stake in is Walmart. I think he cut his stake in that by about a quarter, which is a about a billion dollars or so of Walmart, I believe he sold. So that's an interesting thing, speaking to the future of that. I'll let you talk if oh, there's anything. Ph- Phillips, I, I've always thought in the back of my mind, it could be something that they'd think about buying the whole thing. Yep, Incidentally, yep. the Phillips family is the big landowner around us in Rangeley, Maine. Um, and I think it's something that Buffett knows well, as countless commenters mention whenever we talk about Buffett online, it, Apple's not a Buffett position. Yep, it, great, great point, I, great I don't point. know why commenters love being the ones to identify that. that yeah, it's, it's, so it's one of his lieutenants. Apple's Ted or Todd, I can't remember which one. It's one of their stakes. It's at the size that they invest in. But it's still interesting. Someone who Warren Buffett completely trusts with uh, to manage billions of dollars, he had, uh, is continuing to add to Apple at these levers. Walmart, my, my interesting takeaway is, you know, Walmart trades at, you know, 15, 20x earnings. Mm-hmm. But uh, sales are growing there. You know, it's still a nice business. But clearly the future is Amazon and online shopping. And Walmart has yet to crack that. They bought Jet, Jet.com for about $3 billion recently. And Buffett might be saying, look, the writing's on these walls. I think the comparison of Walmart today to the Sears of the late 80s, early 90s, where Walmart had just passed it and it was clear Sears was dead. Amazon today to Walmart to Walmart seems a lot like that. Go ahead. He's good at not uh, throwing good money after bad. And I think he's... Very perceptive here, so we'll see. The next one I, I noticed was uh, David Einhorn. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his uh, big uh, positions was uh, Rite Aid uh, that he uh, bought a significant amount of in the past quarter. Yeah, so Rite Aid's the stock we talked about on our March 31st podcast. It is in a deal to get acquired for $9 per share by Walgreens. Uh, the big concern there is antitrust approval. This mm-hmm. is what's known as a three to two. There are three big uh, pharmacy players, that's Rite Aid, CVS, and Walgreens. Walgreens buying Rite Aid, so that would take the industry from 
three big players to two big players, and a lot of people are concerned if the FTC is going to allow this to go through or not. And I'll let you throw in your updated thoughts sure. for March 31st podcast. We, uh, we don't know. Uh, they don't know. Uh, and they won't know for a few more months. When you look at branches, uh, the range that they could be demanded under their merger agreement to divest is between zero and a thousand. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the secret sauce of this deal is the uh, locations vary widely in profitability. Yep. They would just assume get rid of about 300 <laughs> of these. And I'm sure the worst ones will be on the, I don't know if anybody from the FTC is listening to this, but a lot of the worst ones are going to be on the uh, divestiture pack. No, don't make us give that one away. It's lining money on fire. No! Exactly. And so they'd love to get rid of 300. They expect to get rid of between 400 and 500. That is not going to be a lot of deal risk. Where the deal risk comes from is the negotiating leverage PBMs have with Walgreens mm-hmm. and with Rite Aid. Many of them prefer to deal with Rite Aid than deal with Walgreens. And whether that not that is seen as an antitrust problem is going to result in the deal getting cleared or blocked. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing here is we've seen a lot of big PBMs come out and they've been like, listen, we, I think it was Express Scripts came out two, three weeks ago. They were like, we don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, Express Scripts and Walgreens were in a fight a couple years ago and Walgreens apparently lost way more customers than Express Scripts did. I just don't think they think uh, these pharmacy players have much negotiating leverage, and I don't think they're worried about this industry going from three to two. But why don't we uh, why don't we kind of leave it hanging on that, sure. and we can come back to Rite Aid later. I think another one we were both looking at is John Paulson and Balpost both uh, bought a lot of EMC. It's one yeah. of their larger merger R positions. We've mentioned this one before, but I think there was an, some interesting stuff happening in the past week with it, sure. and I'll let you take it. Uh, well, the first thing is we now have a when-issued uh, security for the tracking stock. So you can actually see much more clarity into the value of what you get. Yeah. You get a combination of cash and this tracker, so we know more about that now. Just as a reminder, uh, the, EM, the EMC deal, EMC is getting bought by Dell. If the deal, clo- if and when the deal closes, uh, EMC shareholders will get, I believe it's $24.05 per share in mm-hmm. cash, and they will get one tracker that reflects the economic equivalent of about 0.11 shares of VMware. 0.111. And uh, that that tracker, it, you can now see, you know, if VMware is trading at 70, the tracker is trading at 40. You can see the discount the market's implying yeah. in the tracker. Go ahead. Uh, Mothcom. Uh, yep. Mothcom is the relatively new uh, regulator in People's Republic of China uh, has to clear this deal. This is the largest tech LBO in history. They want to have a say. Uh, it has been outstanding for a while now. The New York Post uh, mentioned that it was going to get done and then actually mentioned that it was done. Uh, but then subsequently we saw them pull and refile the application. So Mofcom is the only remaining regulator outstanding yes. to approve this deal. Everyone else has done it. Like you're seeing last week on Tuesday, the New York Post had an article that said, hey, this is a done deal. China's about to approve it. On Friday, they came out with an article that said, China's approved it. Deal's going to close next week. And today, EMC came out with a... Uh, an announcement that said they've actually refiled with Mofcom. So there's still kind of some some hair left on that. Go ahead. And I don't see these as being that importantly discordant. Uh, you know, I think that some publications like the Wall Street Journal 
New York Times, FT, and Bloomberg dual source. They wait until they're certain. Yep. Some don't. But that's fine with me, at least to kind of take in a bit of the color on what's happening with the deal. In this case, I think they actually substantively got very, very close and refiled an application that was closer to a settlement by American standards that I do not believe that there are materially yeah. problematic differences between the regulators and the companies. Yeah, nobody thinks there's any risk of this breaking. Timing. It's just timing. Yeah. And in this case, you know, the New York Post got word that the, this was getting closer and they thought that they thought it was clearing, yeah. but it shows the risk of the New York Post is not the Wall Street Journal. They're not Single Bloomberg. Source. You know, everybody kind of makes fun. We call them the inscrutable New York Post because when they report something, a lot of times it's directionally right, but it's completely off. Yeah. Um, and 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 I don't want to be too dismissive of timing risk because another month or two gives another month or two of something unrelated going wrong. Exactly. Uh, last one I want to mention, and then we'll move on to mutual funds. Why don't we just go to Value Act, uh, Morgan Stanley? I thought this was an interesting one because. Value Act is known as an activist, you know, they, but they're more of a suggestivist. They buy a stake and then they work with management to improve, increase value. Uh, they've done the thing with, they've done that with both Microsoft and Adobe. They took a big stake in Morgan Stanley, and I just wanted to mention it because it's interesting. They took the stake in Morgan Stanley and said, hey, we think Morgan Stanley's strategy is the right one. We're here because we think the stock's cheap and we want to support management. I, I just thought it was interesting. It's the first time an activist has even kind of stuck their toe into doing anything at one of these banks. So I, I just thought it was interesting for that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or They're great shareholders when they're on the board. They're great board members. They're not belligerent. When there's nothing to fight about, they don't fight. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we move on to the battle for mutual funds. So sure. the SEC has a plan that would allow for the electronic delivery of annual reports. Uh, currently, you're required to receive paper reports unless you specifically opt into electronic reports. All this rule does is says your default to electronic reports and you can opt out to paper reports if you would like. Uh, funds still have to mail a lot of things in paper, actually. Monthly statements, prospectuses, uh, and even a paper notice that gives you the web address of where the electronic report can be found online. Just the report's going to be electronic. Seems like this should be a pretty easy vote. It will save $200 million annually. These fund reports are huge. Some of them are over 600 pages, and they're honestly very rarely read. So they're saying, look, it seems silly to mail these. We'll save 2 million trees per year, save tons of costs. But a lot of people are fighting this. And Chris, I'll let you dive into what's happening here. It's amazing when I go to my mailbox how much I just take directly to the recycle bin without yeah. even – because you just if it's important, you just read it online. Um, so uh, you get one guess as to who the uh, staunch advocate of paper is. Uh, you know, there's a lot of verbiage that goes into this. You know, what about – little old ladies that have trouble reading and, you know, a lot of very maudlin kind of pull at your heartstring stories. Maybe these are people who spend their days reading to little old ladies in nursing homes, but no, they are people who own your main paper companies. So the paper industry has come strongly out against this. And the other, uh, the other big opponent of this is the unions, specifically the postal worker unions, are all working to fight this rule. And it's pretty clear why, right? You, you take out 200 million of costs, but that's 200 million dollars of mail that's not going through the system and 200 million dollars of paper that's not getting bought. Uh, and it's incredible, but they're seeing some traction. More than a dozen lawmakers have come out against the provision. Uh, and I thought their their arguments for why this rule shouldn't go through were really interesting. The labor union said, look, I don't think the SEC should have spent a penny of, of uh, the government's money thinking about this. 
It's ridiculous because the average person with a $30,000 401k, they're only paying 45 cents per year. So who cares if we're spending a little too much on paper? And Chris, I'm going to let you talk about it. The only time unions care about how much the government's spending money is if the government spends some trivial amount of money trying to optimize uh, and uh, make things more efficient. Um, You know, I think you, you look at this case... And uh, there's always a lot of kind of reasons that are given by incumbent rent seekers. And when I say rent seeking, I mean the value that the, the, the value that a producer gets above and beyond any value in good or service yep. given. And so it's always a political phenomenon. Uh, and uh, in this case, it is not a philosophical phenomenon. Uh, politicians in Maine across the political spectrum, uh, from liberals to uh, nominal conservatives, are a fighting tooth and nail to prevent electronic distribution. Um, and uh, they, they might win. You know, consumers and taxpayers have costs that are very diffused, yep. uh, that are very invisible, and they're not good for standing up for your rights. If you waste a few dollars in taxes, you can't hire a lobbyist. But if you get paid tens of millions of dollars in rent, uh, you uh, you can uh, fight to defend it. And, and, you know, I thought you used the word incumbent, and I think the word incumbent, it, it's really interesting because it really shows the path dependency of regulation, right? Right now, mutual funds are required to mail out monthly statements. Mm-hmm. No, no paper company is going to go and be like, they should do weekly or daily because everybody's going to laugh at them right. and say, you're just trying to get more paper mailed. But if you try to change it from monthly to yearly, the paper company will argue because right now it is monthly. It really shows the path dependency. Go ahead. Well, let me just have a, uh, a mental game that I think is a great mental game for thinking about your portfolio and investing. And it's also a great mental game for thinking about politics. Imagine for a second, without anybody's permission, I snuck around everybody's backs and change the rule to all electronic yeah would anybody argue for going back to paper it never exactly. ever it's nobody would point. even mention if, if you look at your portfolio as an investor and say if you changed it would you ever change back and you wouldn't then it's time to make the change i i, I know you do the same thing i actually call our brokers a lot and i push them like don't mail me stuff i don't want mail i just want it to hit me electronically like that'd be for the better the other thing I, I, I thought was interesting is like somebody a uh, someone used the line the line online. Are we missing the forest for the trees here? Which I think is great. But you know, one of the big arguments of the fund industry is: listen, these prospectuses are six hundred plus pages long, and almost no one reads them. So why are we mailing them? Uh, you know, almost no one reads these. They're too long. They're too complex. Why are we mailing them? And are you missing it because? If they're too long and too complex and no one's mailing them, maybe you need to relook at the rules and see, think about mailing things that are actually valuable and are actually providing value. You know, one of the things in uh, in companies 10Ks, the risk factors have gotten so diluted because if you miss a risk, you get sued. So everyone puts every possible risk, like an asteroid hitting the Earth, mm-hmm. is listed as risk factors. So they're they're useless because there's so much. And I, I think that's an interesting thought. Uh, liability makes uh, this much worse. You know, the average uh, new motor, motorcycle customer, a, 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 an awesome but dangerous activity, does not read about the risks of a new Harley Davidson because it's hundreds and hundreds of pages. Yep. And six, you know, if it wasn't for the liability and people were actually trying to just do what made sense, there'd be a few pages and everybody would read it. Yeah, exactly. So I, I just wonder if 
everybody's caught up on the regulating the paper aspect of it and you're kind of missing the point that these things need to be shorter and informed that investors can read and look these are these are widely held mutual funds that are mailing these it needs to be informed that the average person can read not someone with sophisticated financial training i'll let you have the last thought uh not only do the paper producers love it but also incumbent managements trying to prevent small holders from taking an active role in management loves it because we well know that proxy battles cost at least hundreds of thousands of dollars if they could be done electronically then mom and pop shareholders could have a real say online look close close end funds is something we've talked about on this before and close end funds really take advantage of this really diffuse holdings among mom and pop investors who only want it for the dividend yield and they use that to pay themselves super high fees and the fact that it's difficult to get all the mom and pops to even vote because of the cost of finding them is one of the reasons they can entrench themselves so i'm going to take the last word there if that's okay great so that's all the time we have for today uh before we hit our disclosures just a quick reminder if you like this podcast please be sure to follow and rate us on itunes stitcher or audio boom if you have any feedback for us please feel free to email it to us at podcast at rangelycapital.com uh, we'll be back with another podcast tomorrow. Disclosures, none for me. Chris, do you have any disclosures? Rite Aid, I own Rite Aid. Oh, I have Rite Aid too. What am I saying? Uh, we both have Rite Aid, and I believe you own uh, some EMC yes. and some Berkshire. Yes. I own some EMC. I can't believe that. We, 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 yeah, we, 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 we have some things to disclose. <laughs> uh, so EMC and Rite Aid for both of us, plus Berkshire for you. Yes. That's it, and we will talk to you guys tomorrow.